This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode in our podcast series on being ESG wise. My name is Julian Hammond and I'm a partner at Hall & Wilcox. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional custodians of the land we are meeting on today. I recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people joining us or listening into this podcast. We certainly do pay our respects to you as well. Um, today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Yafiwi Nji, who is an Associate Professor at Monash University and Acting Director of the Australian Centre of Justice Innovation. Yafiwi's research centres on strengthening political institutions and enhancing executive accountability. Her work is focused on the regulation and accountability of actors and institutions in the shadows of government, such as ministerial advisors, lobby groups, and government corporations. She is a prolific commentator on contemporary political issues in both electronic and broadcast media, so you definitely will have heard her somewhere before. Yafui is also a former colleague of mine uh, from a different life, and we both worked in the Victorian Department of Premier and Cabinet, and we might talk about that a little bit later. So welcome, Yafui. Today we're going to discuss an underrated, some might say criminally underrated, that's my dad joke for this podcast out of the way, um, part of the ESG framework, which is governance. Um, and so as part of our governance discussion, Yafui, we and I were discussing anti-corruption commissions, which are a particular topic of interest for Yifui in her research and an area in which she has established a strong reputation as an academic and commentator in numerous publications. This is an area with obvious relevance for our public sector clients. However, as you will hear today, there's also significant relevance for private sector entities that contract with government and the expansive remit of the proposed National Anti-Corruption Commission will likely touch on many components of the private sector as well. So to get underway, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Yafui, and the work that you do and what your interests are in this area as well. Sounds great. So thanks so much for inviting me, Julian. I really appreciate it and it's a pleasure to be here. So basically, I used to be a public servant, as um, you said, and we've, it's been great being colleagues. And what I saw within the public sector did worry me in terms of um, how government operated the power and influence of ministerial advisors and lobby groups, and yeah, how uh, executive accountability was continually subverted in one way or another. So when I moved to the side of the light, that is the ivory towers um, to academia, I started researching these issues of executive accountability and how to hold government to account. Um, particularly given all these um, new influences on the executive, um, like ministerial advisors, lobby groups. And part of that is how oversight bodies should um, police actions of various parts of government. So, so yeah, that's been my focus for a number of years. And I've uh, written lots of stuff on it. So a couple of books, uh, a lot of journal articles and so forth. And I've been quite vocal as well. 
Yeah, that's very true. And I mean, we will provide links to the various texts that you've written in respect to the role of ministerial advisors and also some books of administrative law as well. It seems to me in part that a lot of the work that you do is really focused on what the former Chief Justice of the New South Wales Supreme Court, James Spiegelman, called this new integrity branch of government that seems to sit, I guess, across or interact with the traditional separation of powers in the Westminster system. Um, it, obviously, your interest could have just generated out of that idea of um, there being the, the power imbalance with ministerial advisors now. Um, but this integrity branch of government obviously sits over all parts of government, the public service and ministerial advisors now. Do you have any observations on that growth of the integrity branch and its interaction with the separation of powers in the Westminster form of government? Yeah, definitely. So I've um, worked with uh, some organisations that are integrity style organisations. So I've worked with the New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption, so ICAC, and they've commissioned me and um, Ju Chong Tam, uh, professor at Melbourne Law School, to write a discussion paper on the regulation of lobbying. And that led to... Uh, announcement of a public public inquiry called Operation Eclipse, where I appeared as well as an expert witness. And basically, the uh, final report came out. And a couple of months ago, the New South Wales government has agreed to implement all of the recommendations, which is fantastic. So there will be law reform in that area. I've also appeared as an expert witness before the Victorian IBEX, so the Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission, on their um, inquiry on Operation Sendon, where they found that a lobbyist was funneling bags of cash to, to councillors in the city of Casey. So the investigation, when you read the transcript, yeah, they can't seem to explain where all these giant sums of money come from. And they suggested the casino, you know, things like that. So um, kind of entertaining. And I've done some work as well. Um, I'm a Victorian com convener of the Electoral Regulation Research Network. So I work with the electoral commissioners as well, who are, I guess, a form of oversight body um, as well. And I've trained electoral commission staff on political finance so, so yeah, I've done some work um, with the integrity bodies and it's been fantastic to collaborate with them on a range of things. I guess, yeah, you're right. They have been a really important force. So it's not just them, it's the Ombudsman, the Auditors General, Anti-Corruption Commissions, as I mentioned before. And these have become really strong forces to provide oversight over the whole of government in their operations. And it's another aspect of enhancing executive accountability that we do have um, these bodies. As you say, they don't sit very comfortably in the separation of powers where we have the executive, judiciary and the legislature. So in some jurisdictions, they are offices of the parliament so like the Auditor General, the Commonwealth Level 1, is an officer of Parliament. So they are linked to Parliament in some ways in reporting and so forth. But others like the Commonwealth Ombudsman is seen to be part of the executive, which um, it doesn't sit quite comfortably in the executive because they police executive activity. So I think that our constitutional system is still... Um, trying to figure out where they sit. I think the general trend is that there'll be a closer connection to parliament. 
So like the Integ- uh, anti-corruption commissions, there's all these watches that watch the watchdogs, like the inspectorate, mm. parliamentary committee set up to um, yep. look at their activities. So I think that's going to be further development in that kind of area. Yeah, it probably makes sense in lots of ways too that it sits on that alignment more with the parliament with its kind of special um, role distinct from the judiciary and the legislature and the the executive in that way and that it it has that kind of special separation in that uh, Vatican City type role that sometimes parliament plays uh, probably is appropriate in some ways for for these types of anti-corruption or integrity bodies as well. Obviously a real gap in the system in Australia which has got a, a panoply of these bodies across all jurisdictions now has been in the federal jurisdiction. And the big topic of discussion at the moment is the National Anti-Corruption Commission. Um, The uh, most important thing about any anti-corruption commission is its abbreviation. So we have the ICAC in New South Wales and the IBAC in Victoria. Everyone seems to be abbreviating uh, the federal body to uh, the NAC, so N-A-C-C, and we'll see if that sticks. Um, What are your observations? Obviously, the draft legislation has just come out um, in the last few weeks. What are your observations generally about the positives and the limitations of that? That draft legislation? Sure. First of all, let's talk about the acronym. So I will set this public. Definitely the most important thing. Yeah, definitely <laughs> yeah, for yeah, public yeah. servant. It's all about the acronym. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So um, apparently there was um, some debate as to whether it should be NIC or NAC. So the National Integrity Commission or the uh, National Anti-Corruption Commission. So in the end, they went for NAC. And I guess you can say that the people who are called before the neck are knackered. Yes, and that is a very good call. The people who work like a lot. Um, if it, they went for Nick, the people who work for the Nick are knickers. So yeah, yeah. Oh, I guess the, all the they're about to get nicked. There you go. So maybe it was good they chose neck. Yes, that's then. right. No, no. <laughs> <I like> that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, but more substantively, um, uh, I think that the bill. Um, after what we had for so many years where we had a coalition government who was so reluctant to put up a model that would work and they put out this really watered down model that wouldn't really investigate the public sector in any depth or yeah wouldn't be able to hold public hearings and so forth. What we do see with the government's approach is a more robust model. So um, so it does have, um, certain features that have been criticized, such as the threshold for public hearings. So it can call public hearings, but only in exceptional circumstances. So that's been one criticism of the model, um, the high bar for public hearings. But that being said, it's an improvement of what the previous government had proposed, where there was not to be any public hearings at all in terms of the public sector. So this bill is very broad ranging. It does cover departments, agencies, government corporations, outsource um, entities, and also ministerial advisors. So the coverage is very broad, and that is a good thing. It will look at serious and systemic corrupt conduct, uh, which is consistent with what we see in Victoria and New South Wales. Um, I, its powers are, I guess, I guess, more equivalent to the Victorian IBAC compared to the New South Wales ICAC. The yes. New South Wales ICAC is still more powerful than what the Commonwealth is proposing. It can investigate a broader range of issues, including 
um, breaches of the code of conduct of ministers and MPs, which, um, you know, in the Commonwealth level, they are lagging behind. There's still no code of conduct for MPs. And um, I don't believe the the NAC will have the ability to investigate breaches of code of conduct of ministers. So we can still see a broader jurisdiction for the New South Wales ICAC compared to this National um, Anti-Corruption Commission. Yeah, okay. That's very interesting. I mean, that distinction there too. Yeah, there's certainly that code of conduct issue is one that's been kicking around that federal level for a long time too, but it doesn't seem as if there'll be much movement on that. One of the things that occurs to us that we're talking to clients about, obviously, if you're a Commonwealth government agency or a Commonwealth statutory corporation or Commonwealth company, then you're going to be caught by this and the jurisdiction will, proposed jurisdiction will cover you. One of the things that I think people don't realise is obviously those people or bodies providing services, exercising powers or performing functions on behalf of the Commonwealth, which will touch on elements of the private sector. In fact, large parts of it, particularly who are procured by the Commonwealth to perform services, will be captured by that. Um, I mean, it's something that obviously you would have seen through your analysis of these bodies is that they really they do, do kind of cover that field. Do you have any observations about that and how it might impact upon um, private and public sector organisations as well? Yeah, I think it is important to cover um, outsourced services and so forth. What we saw in the 1970s and 1980s was the tendency of governments to outsource privatised functions that used to be core governmental functions. Yes. So, yeah, so there's this trend for privatisation and outsourcing due to what was called the new public management movement where um, the idea was that government should be run in a more business-like way. And this means that if you don't cover those kind of outsourced organizations or contracted out services, you're missing a whole lot of um, the public sector and what is now conducted by the public, I mean, the private organizations on behalf of the public service. So I think it is essential that they are covered and it's fortunate that they are in the legislation. Yeah, and certainly from our perspective, we're talking to clients about preparing themselves if they aren't already. Obviously, there's you know huge frameworks around risk and procurement and bribery and corruption anyway. They should be on top of but preparing themselves for the potential uh, engagement with this body and the powers that it has once it once it commences as well. One of the things that the observation has been made, in particular by the Centre for Public Integrity, is in relation to uh, what they see as an evident limitation in relation to investigating third parties. So they would say that under the, the current NAC bill, if you were a third party acting to corrupt a public official, but the official themselves is innocent and they don't act corruptly, then that action wouldn't be falling within the jurisdiction. Do you see that as a limitation yourself? I think the focus on public officials or people who are connected with the public sector in some way um, is appropriate in the sense that we are investigating government corruption first and foremost. And we do take this idea of the public sector quite broadly, including, you know, government corporations and statutory corporations and so forth. Um, So so in a sense, I think um, focusing on the public side of things is appropriate and bringing in the private side where, you know, government officials are implicated. Yes. Um, When I look at the ICAC, um, New South Wales ICAC legislation, they do seem broad in the sense that they have a long list of what could constitute corrupt conduct. Mm. Um, And 
that includes um, improper collusion with tendering and things like that. So it's possible that, um, that the ICAC legislation, again, is broader in terms of what it could cover. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that is right, what the Center for Public Integrity said, that um, there's uh, potentially a limitation there at the federal level that might not exist in New South Wales. And yes, I, you know, I guess one of the things we, we think about there is, as you say, if it's focused on the, the public official, the person providing services or um, acting on and performing powers or functions on behalf of the Commonwealth or the public officials, then the third party themselves might be subject to other investigatory powers like police or, you know, yeah. other, other bodies, you know, um, crime commissions, et cetera, things like that. So, yeah, there might be other areas where that um, conduct that uh, effective in corrupting a public official might still be um, available to be prosecuted or investigated. One of the issues that we've seen getting around sometimes in um, in news limited papers, I must say, is um, the idea of investigating public servants watching Netflix while working from home, which uh, it seems to me uh, that the, the serious and systemic criterion, which is embedded in the draft NAC legislation, which comes from the Victorian experience as well in terms of prioritising serious and systemic, that would surely prevent any investigations of, uh, of such terrible conduct, such as watching Netflix while working from home. <laughs> yeah, it'll be incredible multitasking for someone who watch Netflix yeah. and work. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Uh, kudos it's to ne anyone who it's never happened. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> but yeah, if someone was able to do that, good on them. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, you're quite right that um that there is a threshold for investigation of serious and systemic conduct. And I think that is appropriate. Um, and that was ventilated by the High Court in the case of Kanin where the uh, New South Wales ICAC went beyond their jurisdiction in investigating the Crown, Crown Prosecutor when she was giving a sort of personal advice that was not part of her official capacity. So that was not um, systemic conduct. So I think having this bar for the jurisdiction or scope of the jurisdiction is good because what we're really worried about is very serious corruption and also corruption that is at the systemic level um, rather than say what a government servant might be doing in their personal life. I wouldn't want, um, you know, all public servants to be watched and hounded every second of the day um, in their life when they're walking about the streets. So yes. I think having this connection with serious and systemic corruption is appropriate. It's interesting because, and I should disclose here that I was part of a specialist team that helped set up the IBAC in Victoria as part of my time at the Premier's Department. But one of the concerns around that Victorian IBAC was that it had that limitation, but it seems as though it hasn't unduly hamstrung Victoria and the IBAC in performing its tasks, um, despite that concern around there being some kind of limitation in that regard. And as you say, in relation to the Canaan case in New South Wales, it might be that that may have prioritised the interests of that body um, or the objectives of that body in a more efficient and productive way than perhaps looking at, at, at that case. Yeah, so yeah, we don't wonder, and they, the anti-corruption commissions have huge powers and yes. strong coercive powers. So we do want to ensure that they do operate within scope and the serious and systemic um, level of investigation does focus their efforts on that. And yes. I think the Victorian IBEC has 
um, been effective in exposing corruption and wrongdoing in the public sector. So they haven't been hampered in their duties. And in fact, it sounds like there's some new investigation that mm, has been revealed which, which, yet. Which, which, which none of us can talk about, about although, already. Yes, <laughs> which, yeah. I think everyone knows about it. And I think the Herald Sun decided to release as many details as they were legally able to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, but we probably shouldn't talk about it now unless we no, um, talk about it when it's some, public. Some public. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, this is the thing there's often this kind of concern as we see with the serious and systemic and the exceptional circumstances limitation they are different limitations the exceptional circumstances one as you say is dealing with the public hearings and the limitation in that regard and certainly there's a lot of concern around that that again replicates a test in the victorian legislation do you have a view about whether that'll inhibit the NAC's ability to investigate and expose i yeah i think that it's better to have a lower threshold for public hearings so like the new south wales icat one has a lower bar. Um, they can hold public hearings where it's in the public interest to do so, um, rather than the exceptional circumstances kind of test. And that has enabled the New South Wales ICAC to hold a lot more investigations in the public compared to um, the Victorian IBAC. But of course, there's that consideration that we don't want to jeopardize a person's reputation unduly. So private hearings are, of course, appropriate um, for the commission to be able to see if they really have a case um, when, they, when they're starting their investigation, especially. But we don't want to have an overly high bar as well for public hearings, because public hearings do give that element of you know, it's not a star chamber, it's exposed to the public. Our court systems are based on this idea of open justice where court hearings are in the public and so forth. So, so I think, yeah, the bar is too high for the National Anti-Corruption Commission or NAC, and it would be more preferable to have something like the New South Wales ICAC version based on just the public interest rather than exceptional circumstances. Yeah, I understand that. And look, that probably really works on the idea that in this corruption commission type environment, that idea of sunlight being the best disinfected. I think if I recall from my law school days, maybe that's Cardozo. I can't remember who's actually said that, but I think it was Cardozo um, being uh, uh, the, the way in which they should operate, that the public hearings are the good way to expose conduct and correct misbehaviour and publicise it so that people are aware of what type of conduct can fall foul of an anti-corruption commission in particular. As you said at the start of this, your work really touches on um, and looks at and has looked at the role of lobbyists as well. Um, there obviously has been this movement towards change in New South Wales and lobbying and political donations are obviously at the forefront. They are probably the next step along the line in terms of how to regulate that um, and bring that within a, a form of regulation that uh, will be able to ensure integrity. Uh, that's probably the next step along the line, I think, both the Victorian and the Commonwealth level. What's your view on um, regulating that role of lobbying and political donations both in Victoria and at the Commonwealth level as well? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, I have been campaigning for reform in both areas. Yes. So, yeah, so the regulation of lobbying right now is extremely weak in most jurisdictions. The strongest would probably be New South Wales and Queensland, where we do have a lobbyist register and the lobbyist, well, in uh, New South Wales and Queensland, there's disclosure of ministerial diaries, which show who the ministers are meeting with. 
And as I mentioned earlier, New South Wales has agreed to um, um, amend their legislation to not just apply to third-party lobbyists, but also in-house lobbyists. So previously, all of the Australian jurisdictions only covered third-party lobbyists, which is only 20% of the whole of the lobbyist population. So we're not regulating most of the lobbyists if we do that. So yeah, after that operation eclipse where, yeah, I ventilated and others ventilated those sorts of issues, the New South Wales regulation will be the most comprehensive in Australia. And that hopefully will set a precedent for the other jurisdictions. So at the federal level, for instance, um, there's a register, a public register, but beyond that, we don't really know much. So um, who are they meeting with? When are they meeting with the ministers? What kind of level of access do they have? There's no disclosure of any of that. Yes. So we've got a better regulation at, um, at the, the New South Wales and Queensland level. Um, but yeah, we have to hope the other jurisdictions um, start to look to reform as well. Certainly the anti-corruption commissions and the integrity commissioners are well aware about the problems of lobbying. Um, so that's why they've uh, commissioned me to write the discussion paper, the New South Wales ICAC did, and I appeared before the Victorian IBAC to explain uh, what potential reforms can be made in terms of lobbying regulation as well. So hopefully the ball is starting to roll towards that direction. Yeah, it does seem that way. It seems like it's kind of that's the, the next frontier of these yeah, this integrity movement in lots of ways is to get better regulation, um, uniform regulation in relation to that role of lobbyists and also dealing with political donations too. Do you see that as being kind of the next future step in this integrity branch in government, that being that, that the primary next step or are there other things on the horizon as well that you kind of see emerging in this space? Yeah, so um, I haven't mentioned political donations in any detail yet. So I'm the Victorian convener of the Electoral Regulation Research Network. And um, as part of that, the electoral commissioners decided to torture me a bit and asked me to <laughs> write this report on um, the regulation of political finance across the whole federation. So after 119 pages of suffering, I mean collaboration. That's right. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> So I've got also yeah recommendations in terms of you know having caps on donations, caps on expenditure, and and increase public funding to um, compensate the political parties for the reduced amount of money that they have. And these are to some extent uh, more advanced at the state level as well compared to the Commonwealth level. So at the state level, New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria now have caps on political donations. But what, what we have is a fragmented system across the federation where if you don't have caps everywhere, what they're doing is they just channel the money through the federal level where there are no caps. You can donate $1 million, $2 million. And, and then, you know, you can circumvent the regulation if one jurisdiction is lenient and the others are strict. You can just channel the, yes, the yeah. lenient regulation. So what we really need is consistent regulation across the federation, which we don't have yet. We have a few jurisdictions that have um, stronger regulation and others weaker where you can just channel the money through. So we're finding now the money's just channeled through all the lax jurisdictions, such as the Commonwealth. And so we do need further reform in that area as well. 
Yeah, it certainly seems like that'll be the case as well. So that's part of the next step also. Well, thank you for, for joining me today. That's a fantastic discussion and overview of some of the key issues in um, the National Anti-Corruption Commission, but also some of the distinctions with the uh, New South Wales body and the Victorian body and some of the broader landscape for integrity bodies, including lobbying and political donations. Um, thank you to all of our listeners as well. We trust that you find the information useful in today's episode and please reach out to us if you have any questions. Um, you can certainly find details on our website, which is hallandwilcox.com.au, or you can connect with us on LinkedIn as well. Um, if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review and follow our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can subscribe on our website to be notified of new episodes as well. And thank you very much for listening today. Mm-hmm.